I am the master, and you will obey me. Listen to Dan Hadley on Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, or face the consequences. Master, as he gone. Time for Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network with me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks and Ringmaster of this show at least. Now, this could be your first show or maybe you've been through our double doors before. Well, whichever. We're a wide-ranging, irreverent, non-gatekeeping, just straight-talking show for everybody. Whatever decade or century you started watching, reading or listening along to the extraordinary adventures of the Time Lord, our hero, Doctor Who. And we talk about it all on this show. And we've even been known to have a few laughs along the way. So come and step into this TARDIS and share our journey together here on Type 40. Hello. Here we are again with another hypnotic edition of the show and a conversation positively buzzing with creative, never mind... Artron energy when we go behind the pop shields and open the word documents over at black glove studio I've got two guests from this increasingly productive team of people making unofficial Doctor Who audio drama They're here to talk about the entire process behind their most ambitious project at least for now the seven-part serial the final game plenty of you will be aware of why that particular title is of such significance to classic Doctor Who. And even if you're not, there's a parallel story to tell that's admirable and exciting. But before we get going, here's a reminder that each and every edition of our show, past, present and future, is a tap or two away on the device of your choice if you know where to look. There's details about all of that coming later on, as well as a mind lock with the Matrix itself. To us, that's the Fandom Podcast Network. We're going to hear about all the other fabulous, just as geeky shows that they've got going on over there. We've had lots of inquiries since we came back for this season. About that intro? (laughs) All's about to be revealed. Meet the men behind the resurrected, original portrayal of the Doctor's best enemy. Now. 
Yes, Doctor Who's history on audio stretches back further than many people may think. We're now accustomed to a whole slate of productions, much more content than ever gets made for any other medium, really. This whole slate that comes to us on audio through our ears and the devices of our choice. And it's a road that was originally sort of dug up ready for people to to come down decades later by a couple of generations worth really of of plucky Doctor Who fans, tech-savvy, creative fans willing to invest their time, their creativity and their passion into creating fresh adventures for the Doctor, his friends and foes. Big Finish itself has its roots in unofficial, non-canonical audio Doctor Who and you'd be forgiven for thinking they they've got the whole market sewn up, wouldn't you really? It really isn't so. There are still teams of dedicated, talented fans banding together, crafting alternatives and sort of bending the boundaries really of, of time and space and of licensing rights. I'm joined by some of them today. We've got Chris McKeon here and Terry Cooper. They're from Black Glove. Welcome, gentlemen, to Type Thank 40. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Now, people out there listening might be wondering who a black glove. This all sounds a little bit nefarious. Sounds a bit Masonic. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we'll get we'll get to all that in a little while. And particularly Terry's involvement in it. I, don't, I wonder if anybody can guess where Terry comes in with this. But, uh, yeah, we're going to start with you, yes. Chris. Was this your baby? Does this all start with Yes. You? So, yes. Um, so, how did it get started? Well, Black Glove Studio got started out of... Um, a celebration, a celebration, which is the uh, the centennial of Roger Delgado. And for any listeners who don't know, they probably do. But he is the man who f- played the master in the John Pertwee era of Doctor Who, um, the first man to play the master. I will always say this, of course, which is for me, that's the greatest irony because for me, I, I think the master first appears in the War Games as played by Edward Brayshaw, but in, um, the War Ooh. Chief character, uh, I think, is the master. Controversy already oh, here, yes. Terry. <laughs> Uh, for me, the, the Master dates back to 1969. But in any case, Roger Delgado is the first man to play officially the Master. And two years ago, a little more than two years ago, um, was his 100th um, anniversary. And even taking a step farther back, for me as a, as a, fan, uh, as a Doctor Who fan, and in other places I've, where I've talked a little bit about this, I, I grew up watching Doctor Who in, in America. And, um, and I grew up, some of my earliest memories of watching first maybe the war games but the john pertwee era and I, one of the, my earliest fan memories maybe starting to connect continuity in my mind was after watching frontier in space um wondering as a little as a little boy where is the master because that was delgado's final on-screen appearance, final on-screen appearance exactly and, and for 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 fans in the 1970s you know there's a three or three and a half year wait for me it might have been a you know watching it a period of several months you know, because it was every week you see an episode or something. So I got through it much more quickly. But even so, I'm thinking, where's the master? Because he was consistently around. And then eventually finding out through internet research that Roger Delgado had died. And he left behind, you know, a wonderful legacy. But one story that was never made, which is called The Final Game. Um, which would have been at his uh, suggestion because he was felt that he was w- losing opportunities for work. Um, it was his, uh, su- not insistence, but suggestion that that be his final story. Suggestion to bring yeah, it to a close. Suggestion to be, bring it to a close. And so, but it was left undone, and so that was replaced by the story Plan the Spiders, which was John Pertwee's swan song. And so when Roger Elgato's 100th birthday came around, there had been, <clears throat> I felt that there was still an opportunity to, there was, there was a, that was a good opportunity in time to do some type of celebration. Now, people might 
recognize my name a little bit because I'm, I wrote the um, sixth Doctor Regeneration story and rematch with the Valleyard novel, Times Champion, uh, some a few years ago. And so I had a little bit of at least some confidence in writing. That was a very high-profile fan, yes. unofficial book, wasn't it? It sold very, yes. very well, and it got some great reviews. Yes, we well, and yes thank you. We, and, and that was done with a lot of love because, um, and a lot of heartache in a way because it was co-written by the late Doctor Who book author Craig Hinton, whom I met at the very end of his life. There were forums. Uh, the BBC, I think, had a book forum at the time, and I remember being very interested in doing something with the ballet art. Because that's another miss. Craig was very active in fandom he as well, was, wasn't he? He wrote for Doctor Who he, magazine. Yes, he was a fandom. wonderful guy. I only met him once personally. He came to a convention over here, but just before his death. But wonderful person and wonderful man. And um, and he was very generous. And when he found out that I wanted to do something with the ballet art, because there's found out more research. Oh my goodness, Colin, Colin Baker's time was missing so many s stories, so to speak, on screen. And there was no conclusion to the ballet art. I wanted to do something. So did he. He and he had done. Um, stuff with the ballet art in the books. So in the 1990s. I remember. And so I had come across this some years later. And so I said, well, I'd love to do something about it. And he said, you know what, let's let's try. And he, he had pitched an idea at the BBC, but it was ultimately rejected. And and he was generous. He said, well, let's, you know, for fun, let's get it online out there. You seem to have some good writing skills and you pa you're passionate about Doctor Who and the ballet art. But he died. Uh, he, he died of a heart attack. And so through wonderful circumstances and such, I was able to, um, other Doctor Who people, I was approached by Simon Gary to try to you know, get it done for Big Finish. Um, and with, with not with, it was a long shot because we, we knew it was going to be a novel and yeah. we couldn't get the rights for that. David J. Howe of Telus Publishing approached me and said, would you like to do it as a charity publication? We did and for the British Heart Foundation because Craig had died of a heart attack. And, and, it, was, and it went very well. And, and, I, and I was very appreciative and happy to take part. Because of that, I had some confidence as a writer. And so I thought the most appropriate thing to do would be to dramatize in some way the final game. But I decided against doing it as a book because I felt that, I felt that the, how do I say this, the age of, of, of being able to create a Doctor Who book as a charity publication, but even a book in general, being very honest, you still have good Doctor Who books out there, but there aren't many Doctor Who books being made anymore, uh, at least at this time. There are a lot of audios being made. And so I, I mean, many, many, many. I, th I think that the, I guess in the wilderness years, kind of before my time, but in the wilderness years, that really was the, the forefront of Doctor Who fiction. You want you wanted to get something out there and you could get it published. It was a book. The book range was always going. Two titles a month, pretty much right. unbroken for most of the Exactly. 90s. So books were the, the main forefront. Time Champion was a callback to that time. But even then it was kind of a bygone era. So I decided, let's see if we can do an audio. And uh, as an audio form. So I'd never done that before, but I, I happened to have a free software kind of script writing uh, program on my uh, computer called Trelby. And I thought, well, let, let me try my hand at doing it. So that's, that's how it's, in a way, it got started. So to go from writing prose to writing scripts. Yes, that was an interesting situation because you write prose and you can just, you know, tell almost, you can pack that story, pack your space with as many details as you want with as many character moments as you want, as many internal monologues as you want. Writing that in a script, not so much, because Doctor Who fans have a kind of a, thanks to Big Finish, and it's a wonderful thing, you have a kind of an expectation of what a Doctor Who audio sounds like. If you go around... Yeah, it's a high bar, yes, actually. Yes, it? exactly. Very high bar. It, and, of course, having the official status exactly. as well. So, number one, you don't want to say, okay, this is this is Big Finish stuff. No, because I'm... I'm almost a one-man show, not quite, but I have a few people like Terry and, and other actors involved, but 
I wanted to make something as good as po as, as, as polished and as, as capable as possible. So I really put upon myself to say, I want to write something very good. And so I, I studied a little bit of how to write a script, an audio script, you know, interior, exterior, so to speak, and then even put that into audio so you can redesign the sound accordingly. But even before I wrote it, I kind of, I was taking part in a, in a, in a charity anthology, a, a writing, a prose anthology um, for the master called the masterpieces I, I don't know if you've heard of that at all but it was a very nice little charity anthology about the master and i was approached actually by ian mclaughlin who wrote um he's a creator of Aramem mm -hmm. from the doctor who audios the fifth doctor companion oh yes wonderful yes. guy wonderful guy ian and and he he said chris i've heard of this would you like to uh, take part you love the master and i said yes so i started uh, as i'm writing my story we hit march 1st of 2018 and i thought you know what I have this idea to do the final game. It was kind of a, my idea to do it as, as this whole process that I just told you occurred like this, kind of a snap of the fingers, like I'd like to do an audio. You know, so, so all this thing, my thought process happened very quickly. So you have the sparks of it and it's only afterwards when you commit yourself, you almost commit yourself emotionally yeah. to going on this down this creative yeah. road and then worry about how you're going yes. to get there afterwards. But I think being within the Doctor Who community and having, like you say, having those contacts with, with like-minded people who are, who are going to encourage you and, and work with you. And then of course you've got the cooperative yes. of Doctor Who fans all around. Now, speaking of which, this is where I want to bring in yes. Terry, because you're you're an old school Doctor Who fan as well, aren't you, Terry? Yeah. We're not going to reveal quite your connection to this production yet, but where did you start with Doctor Who? How, when did you start watching? Oh well, I I was uh, born in London, and the first time I actually knew about Doctor Who, I must have been six or seven, I think. The first episode I ever remember watching is The Green Death, um, and I think Doctor Who then was on a Saturday afternoon. And because my family are Welsh, even though we were living in, living in London, my dad is from Wales, um, The Green Death was set in Wales. So that probably gave him something to watch about miners in Wales. Except. United the whole family. Yeah. yeah. And um, from there, um, we knew a young kid who lived uh, like two doors down in the street. And he had this whole shelf of Target Doctor Who books. Um, so my brother... Uh, my older brother, you know, befriended him and he said, you've got to, you know, see it. And he, he was using the kid like a library. So he'd go down and bring back five <laughs> books at a time and we'd share them out. You know, so I started finding out about the Cybermen, the Daleks and that kind of thing. You know, I don't have a lot of uh, memories of the John Pertwee era, but uh, Tom Baker is when I think, you know, everyone uh, around my age got into it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, through Tom Baker to Peter Davison, um, kind of started falling off the idea of Colin Baker, which is ironic because I know him quite well now and I've worked with him. But I told I told that Colin Baker too. So I said, you weren't my favourite doctor. He goes, that's all right. I wasn't my favourite doctor either. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, um, I, I dipped in now and again Sweet from man. Colin Baker onwards. I think it's my love of the Daleks and the Cybermen, especially the Cybermen, uh, has kept me watching ever since, really. You're what we'd call a lifer. Yeah, I am, yeah. That's wonderful. But you're also a fiercely creative man as well, aren't you? I understand you work in production design and graphic design yeah. and you make costumes and all that sort of thing. But specifically with regard to this, you're also a performer, yes. aren't you? So I wonder if you'd like to reveal, who, what do you do in the final game? Who do you play? Who, what do you bring to life? Okay, uh, well, I'll just give you a little bit of backstory there. So, uh, when I heard uh, that Chris was doing the final game, 
um, I was looking for a, an audio that I could do because I've done different things in the past. I've even played a doctor once in a small audio, but it was just a kind of introductory 10 minutes where the doctor gets killed and regenerates into a woman. <laughs> and that was years ago. But I, I've done quite a lot of audio stuff and I was looking around and when I heard about Chris's one, the final game, I thought, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to have a, a role in this, you know, being British, there's always room for random British people, you know, British accents in, in Doctor Who because it's all the kind of... Yeah, Chris is nodding, Chris is nodding. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, because Doctor Who is traditionally made and shot in Britain, you know, you've got the whole, you know, the gamut of uh, British actors to choose from. So if you're going to need unit soldiers or anything like that, or even time lords, they're all going to have British accents. So I thought I, I could do something like that. Um, so I said to uh, to Chris, you know, can I audition for the Brigadier? Um, not that I'm particularly good at doing the Brigadier's voice, but I thought I'm British. I can do a kind of, uh, you there, uh, five rounds rapid, you know, that kind of thing. It's uh, fairly sure yeah. it's Chroma, that kind of thing. But, but I thought it's it's close, but not quite there. Um, as far as Doctor Who impressions go, I don't really do many. I mean, I can do Cyberman. I can do, uh, I've done Davros in the past, uh, but they involve a sound effect, a voice effect. Um, same with K9. But impressions, I can't really do many Doctor impressions. So uh, I sent in my auditions to uh, Chris of the Brigadier, and he came back to me and said, okay, not bad, but uh, have you thought of doing the Master? And, you know, I, I grew up, like I say, with the Tom Baker era, and I saw mostly Anthony Ainley's Master. I thought, well, you know, we'll see what I can do. So I, I watched a ton of YouTube clips and some Bertwee videos just to kind of get my head around, you know, much like most impressionists do. They familiarize themselves with the, the voice. And so I basically sent Chris my audition, which was me rereading everything, every line or clip that I've watched. So I didn't have a script to read. I just basically said all the things that Delgado said in some of his clips. And Chris came back and said, wow, that's that's really good. That's, you know, that's a great master. I'm like, is it? Because it's so, such a new impression for me. It doesn't feel that authentic in a way, but, um, you know, uh, a lot of people have said, oh, this, this guy's a good Roger Delgado. And I think, well, <laughs> is it probably because of my age or, you know, I'm sort of the same age as Roger and, uh, I'm, you know, I'm English and whatever. But, uh, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, I'm playing the master in the final game. That's that is the role yes. really in this in this production, is it? Even when the master isn't in our ears, everything that's going on sort of revolves around. Yeah, him, he's, really. he's the uh, the and, Emperor and Chris Palpatine. Does, Chris teases to, to, us. Yeah, <laughs> he's the Phantom Menace who's got uh, his machinations of everything. But again, like I say, I I wasn't hunting out a lead role because I didn't think I could do. I could sound like the master. I didn't think I could sound like any of the doctor or any of the main characters. So I just thought, well, you know, I'll be unit soldier number six. You know, uh, yes, sir. No, sir. Ah, get killed three minutes later. But then Chris says, you know, if you're, if you're willing, do the master for me. And I was like, okay, great. I'll do that. Opposite, it's, it's Marshall who plays the doctor. Isn't it? And he's, he's fantastic as the yes. doctor too. But so to have a performance as... As uncanny as that, he, he really is. You, to, you'd have to get on the same level, and I, I sincerely think that you do, Terry. Do you want to give us a quick blast of the master there? 
I am usually referred to as the master, universally. The thing about the master is he's very theatrical, what he says and what he does. <laughs> yes, Doctor, I've caught you again. And the thing about that is... Um, Actually, you have to give me a moment. I've got, shi I've got shivers going up my spine now. I feel proper, proper creeped out. Nobody's going to argue with any of that. That is the master. I think it has got better over time. You know, over the seven episodes I've done of the final game, um, I, I'm more in my stride. Uh, to begin with, uh, I was probably more nerves and just trying to think, how is it? How's it going to get? How's it going to sound right? But yeah, um, like I say, I'm really I surprised myself. Um, that people have come back and, you know, because the last thing I wanted was to appear as the master opposite Marshall, who does the most amazing John Pertwee you've ever heard, you know, and I didn't want to be the, you know, the weak link in the chain there, you know, he's got yeah. this great cast and then you've got, got a guy doing, hello, I'm a posh man trying to be the master and it would be, you know, awful. Yeah. But uh, something... I can only imagine how Chris must have felt when, when he heard you do that for the first time. And to, and to, and to get there, you must have felt like it hit the, hit the sort of lottery. Well, I can really. tell you how I felt. When I was casting for the Master, Terry was the last person that I announced. Not quite the last person that I cast, but in, this, in the main cast, he was the last one I announced. But he was the hardest to find. Marshall was fairly easy to find. I knew going into it that going from the bottom up, you know, essentially it could be, okay, the, the smallest characters. I still wanted to hold them to a good standard, you know, for example, say, the, the woman that you see in Spearhead from Space when the, the, um, the Auton Storm Swarm is coming, she's the first female officer yes. you see from in unit. Well, she's in this story. Um, she has only one little brief scene, and that's it in, 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 in Spearhead from Space. But even then I asked my actress, when I asked the actresses, can you, can you sound like her as best you can? But I still felt like they could be far away or close, but as long as they sound a little bit, that's all right. But there could be some room. The farther up you went up the, the chain of command, so to speak, or the, the, uh, the cast chain, you know, higher up to the larger roles, I wanted to be as close as possible. What I really, what I really knew was to make this a Roger Delgado, because it was a Roger Delgado um, uh, centennial celebration, it really had to be whoever was the doctor and the master, because you can't have the master without the doctor. And in my opinion, vice versa. Those two, and also probably to a certain extent, the Brigadier actor and the Sarah Jane actress had to be crucial. crucial. They had to, and they had to sound the same, but certainly the Doctor and the Master had to sound spot correct. Marshall was easy to find because he already had um, some YouTube uh, clips of himself uh, doing a, a John Pertwee Im, uh, impression. But trying to find the Master, I'll put it this way, <laughs> it's very easy to find not and not to... to dismiss anyone's quality or their their passion for the for the trying to do the Roger Delgado voice and I had several that were very good but it's very easy to find people that are a capable voice actor that can do a very capable kind of omni master sound you know a kind of menacing you know very rich voice that that's that the deeper voice and yeah. such very 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 um and there's there's a, an abundance, and they are very good. It is extremely hard to find someone that can do a competent, even close, or even remotely close, Roger Delgado voice. It is very hard. That's the kind of thing that surprised me, because, like I say, I'd, I'd never um, consider myself a, a Doctor Who impersonator. And 
um, if someone had asked me to find a, a John Pertwee impersonator, the only person I knew of is, uh, you know, the, the BBC uh, guy, John Culshaw. But I think the hardest part, obviously, for you is obviously to find the doctor. But if you had yes. a doctor in mind, uh, an actor to play the doctor, that was great. Mm -hmm. But then, like I said, I didn't want to come in and be the, uh, the slightly substandard uh, master. And if you'd have turned around and said, yeah, well, week, you know, week. I've heard your audition and it's not that great. You know, we want this to be spot on and even now it just takes some uh you know some convincing for me to think is it really is it really but uh you know in the x-men comics and movies when a kid yes. hits 16 or whatever and they suddenly discover they got mutant powers well basically <laughs> I, I i woke up one morning and i thought I've discovered that I can sound like Roger Delgado, and that's <laughs> that hasn't been that long ago. It wasn't like I've been—I mean, I've been doing Jack Sparrow for about eleven, twelve years, so that's second nature. But to do a voice that everyone says is is really good, it's still—I need to be convinced because I'm thinking, really, do I? Okay, fair enough. Still a bit of imposter yeah. syndrome. Yeah, there. yeah, totally. It's like I—I I don't think, you know, I do, but. I'm no, happy to definitely to not an imposter. You no. are absolutely, can, absolutely. Well, can I tell you that when I decided to do a, a Skype call with uh, myself and Marshall, because I decided that Marshall would be the, the doctor, Pertwee's doctor, and then who the, these these various men, I think we had uh, three at that time, to uh, voice audition for Delgado, and so they pair off each other. When um, Terry came along, and we heard the possibility, and I heard his first audition, although he sounds very good. When he came along, like I said, you know, before we started recording, that this is the first time I've actually seen Terry's face in a video when we talked, because we talked before and a few times, but um, it was uh, just, just audio. Well, then this is important to this particular story, is that uh, when we had our three-way call happening, I, I had my video on, Marshall had his video on, so I could see him, he could see me. We could, we could hear Terry, we couldn't see his face. Um, and I, I don't know if he could. I don't think he could see us. Yeah, this was Skype, so I, I don't have a webcam. Sure. Um, so um, I was I was just using audio only, so I could see you two, but I couldn't. Okay. Uh, you know, I couldn't. I didn't have a camera, so you couldn't see me. Okay. Well, that changes maybe some small small part of that I didn't know, but at the time I didn't think you could see us. And so when when Terry, when you started talking, I think I told you this before. When you started talking. What it was was there's a, it, we used as our sample a scene from uh, part two of the final game where the, the doctor and the master are talking to each other, uh, doing uh, building a device, and just having kind of a friendly conversation. And, and um, when Terry started to vocalizing the master, Marshall's eyes went wide. He started he started shaking around. His hands started flying all over the place because he had never he had never talked to Terry before. I had, uh, I think briefly, but he had never talked to Terry. Marshall started went start, went nuts. Marsha, you could tell, was floored, thrilled, and amazed at the sound of Terry's voice. And so we, when we went through the scene, and I was doing the same thing, because I, 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 I was actually hearing it in my ears for the first time, and it was amazing. And then hearing Terry with, paired up with Marshall was golden. But when we were done, we, we sent Terry away. We said, well, thank you, Terry. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you. And I was convinced at that point. But uh, when Terry left, Marshall and I stayed in the conversation for a few more minutes talking about it. When I said to him, so what did you think? And he said, Chris, it's like Roger Delgado joined our Skype call. 
and that was it. I thought Terry's the master. Terry is the Roger O'Connell master, and really it well, was. It was so beautiful. Let, let me let me just say this: that um, for as much as you said uh, Marshall was freaking out at hearing my impersonation of Roger, um, I was uh, freaking out when I first heard Marshall. <laughs> Before I, I, I put the Delgado voice on, he was talking to a Brit, uh, a disembodied voice of a Brit. And it's like, well, you know, it, it's it's probably not that much of a leap to go from a Brit to Roger Delgado, as, as I can imagine. But um, it, I mean, in the case of Jack Sparrow, Johnny Depp has got to get, he's going to lose his American accent, do this sort of, uh, it's a slightly well-spoken but Cockney accent for Jack Sparrow, and he's got the slurring. And so he's got more hurdles it, it's further removed and the same with Marshall you know I was talking to him and I heard this American kid's voice and I thought you know um, h how because I, I regard as uh, how will Pertwee's that? voice to be one of the hardest to do because yeah. there aren't that many people who do it very very few so you know when he said now listen listen my dear chap or whatever he says this is what say, hand me that thing over there and I was like Oh my god! I was like, to me, it was like, like exactly what you said. I was like, John Pertwee has just jumped over the Skype call here. It's like this is absolutely incredible, and that obviously put the the frighteners on me because I'm like, oh my, I've got to be at least as good as this guy, otherwise it's going to be John Pertwee pl uh, playing against some bit part actor who's been asked to stand in, you know. Um, so so I'm like I say I'm completely uh, a fan of uh, Marshall's uh, John Pertwee. So once that you two guys are on board, Ma Marshall and yourself, Terry, then Chris, your project yes. starts to starts to yes. come to life and the material can start to be, the, the story can, can be planned and plotted and the material sent out to these, to these good people. Because uh, as you mentioned earlier on, the original story, the final game, was commissioned for season 11 of Doctor Who, yes. wasn't it, by, by Barry Letts at the time from Robert mm -hmm. Sloman, and it would have closed out the season as a, as a six-parter, one would assume, because that's how things yes. tended to be. And it was intended to close what we would call now in modern terms an arc, wasn't it? The entire arc of the story of the Master that had, be that had began well, with Roger Delgado in, in Terror of the Autons specifically. Yes. But even though this story was commissioned, Nothing. What actually exists? Did it, does it exist as a storyline breakdown? Did you have any raw material that you could work from, or does it all come from the mind of Chris? It, 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 it almost all comes. If I being very honest, it almost comes from my mind. The only thing that we know on the DVD of the Planet of Spiders, there is a documentary called The Final Curtain, which talks about the death of Roger Delgado, and of course, as a backdrop, his time as the master and what would have been um, the lead up to the final game. According to Terrence Sticks, what exists of that was simply, he says, it never got beyond discussion. Um, so there, for, as far as we know, there are no story out, there are no scripts apparently, and not even a story outline. Because it, again, Roger Delgado, if you think of the timing. Roger Delgado dies in June of 1973. When when did they film Planet of the Spiders? And they filmed Planet of the Spiders in, I believe, March and April of 1974. So nine to ten months after Delgado's death. Mm -hmm. So right around the time that Delgado died, probably is about the time that they, Robert Sullivan probably would have started writing the scripts around that time. So there are no scripts, not a story outline. What we know is, according to Terrence Sticks, is that, of course, it would have featured the master. We would have obviously featured the third doctor in Sarah Jane Smith. Uh, no mention of unit, but I imagine it would have been. But even so, the only thing that was thought is that they would have 
revealed the probably the, the relationship, the nature, true nature of the relationship between the doctor and the master. And Barry Letts has said that they felt that they were brothers. There's a couple of versions of that. There's, there's, there's the line that says they could have been revealed as brothers. And there was another idea, a more sort of conceptually sort of far yes. out idea, that they were even one of the same yes. person, the, the ego and the id and all this, you know, something very, very high concept. So there's a little, a little bit of grey area there, but the principle's the same. Yes, principle's the same, that they, are, that they are not just simply um, two students that became, uh, if they were at the academy together, two time lords, two Gallifreyans that become time lords that um, met each other happen, by happen stands or, or whatever at their version of school. So as such, apart from a few quotes from the gentleman involved, there was very little research you could actually yes, do. There was one, there? One, but there was one thing that, that helped, which was that Terence Six had said in, this, in, in his interview portions of the, that documentary that there was some type of, there maybe would have been some type of catastrophe that would have forced the doctor and the master to work together and at the end... Um, the master perhaps would have redeemed himself and um, maybe saved the doctor uh, in the end, but it would have been left ambiguous. That I'd heard before that maybe the master would have saved the, the doctor at some, maybe some, an explosion, some people thought an explosion or such. But the, the thing that I didn't know is that there would have been some catastrophe. So I was able to use that at least. And those like that general framework to think, and if you're asking how I came up with the storyline, taking those ideas and those I, I kind of treat it like a like a chess board or something or at least a game board because when, when you've listened when you listen back to this and i've, I've heard a majority of the yes. final game now it's a very although it's very respectful it's clear that there's a, a great in-depth knowledge of doctor who and specifically this era mm -hmm. of doctor who with the various characters and threads that you yes. put together that it's it's a it's modern in many respects, it's of a, of a great scope on a on a broader canvas, and yet it feels it feels right in the sweet spots where it doesn't get too big for it to be not Doctor Who anymore. You can imagine this being filmed with a couple of cameras in a three-walled yes. set. That must be the toughest rope to yes. walk. Part of my ethos, which was okay, I want although it's an audio adventure. I don't have the budget and I don't have a time machine and such. I can't film it as it would have been in 1974, but my ethos going into it was this will be an audio uh, presented as best I can as if it were a television story from 1974. So that meant I put myself in the mindset on this chessboard, so to speak, or this game board, whatever. Okay, which characters will be there? And I thought, okay, the third Doctor will be there. Sarah Jane will be there. The Delgado Master will be there. Who else will be? Those three are certain. Doctor Companion and main villain. Who else should be there? I thought, well, unit should be there because they should have some closure and they were most in that story. So that means the Brigadier. That means Sergeant Benton. Because it's season 11, I thought, okay, no Captain Yates. Laying that aside because of keeping in the continuity. In modern television terms, in event television, for example, when if you were wrapping up a, a storyline or a, a, an entire show, which is effectively what happens every few years yes. on Doctor Who, they would they would go to greater lengths, wouldn't they, to encapsulate the entire series in a conclusion. So you would reach back to it and pick up other characters, whoever was left alive, and you would bring them into the present. Yes. You would you would try and close out the entire thing in a, in a very round and satisfying way, and almost right. as if. In, in, in almost in a way in which the, an eight-year-old watch, watching who may sort of think, oh, yeah, this is this is a great story, but I wish that we weren't just getting 
an envelope from Joe Grant coming through the post of the Doctor and this, I wish that we could yes. see Joe Grant one last well, time. Yeah. And I wish that we could do this and do that and, and, and touch that and hear that and, and feel this. And, and you're able to do that. This, this gives you the scope. Yes. To open it up well, in those we, ways. I went into this story thinking to myself, okay, if I wanted to be feel like it, as if it were 1974 all over again. Uh, Saturday, what does Tom Baker say? Sometimes in the audios, it's Saturday um, night tea, Saturday night, yeah. uh, tea time in 1977. Well, I thought, in my mind, I, I, I went to thinking, okay, as if John Pertu were saying, it's Saturday uh, day tea time in 1974 all over again. So with that, I thought, okay, well, to prepare, because I didn't just think, I want this person, I want that person, I want this situation and such. If you want full disclosure, I thought I'm going to wa- I'm going to go back and watch all of the stories with Delgado's master. But then I thought I should also, you know, because Sarah Jane is in the story, I should watch her stories. And then I just realized, you know what? Because the doctor's there, I should watch his. And I just thought, I'm just going to watch the Pertwee so that I can immerse myself fully in these characters because I. And so going through that process, how did the did the storyline start to sort of reveal itself in a linear way, or was it more in a in a con- as a construction? You know. It- <laughs> Could you see the whole thing, or, or did you just sort of tread one step at a time? And how did you, and when you were assembling these scripts, how quickly were, were Terry and the other voice artists able to sort of get the material? It's kind of both, all in a way, all of the above. I very quickly realized, going off of the idea, what Terry and Stick said, that there had to be some catastrophe. I thought to myself, well, what catastrophe could you have? Again, so keeping in the framework of 1974 what would fit in a 1974 context that would bring the master and the doctor together to, to fight a common enemy. And I thought the logical conclusion is the Daleks. Um, because the last time we saw the master on screen um, was uh, Frontier in Space and, he, and Planet of the Daleks by extension, where the master's teaming up with the Daleks. I thought we need, it would be a wonderful thing to explore what's perhaps the fallout of that adventure, what is maybe if there's any more back history behind that adventure. Once I had that, okay, Daleks. That's the catastrophe. Because uh, I, I, I could have, th- I thought maybe you could have this or that, but I thought I don't want to dip into future eras, and I can't really see the ice warriors coming into play. No, and you this know? and the and the Pertwee the era is very much defined by the fact that it's it's the era where there's lots of invasions coming yes. to the Earth. That was a deliberate attempt, and that did stay, even though they did venture away from planet Earth, and, the, and there was you know with the, with the dematerialization circuit and everything else. It ultimately did come back to being an yes. Earth. An Earth-based yes. show, right at the end as well. So by making the sort of ultimate alien invasion mm-hmm. story f- that was right for that era, I can completely see why you reached why you yeah, reached for the yeah. Dark. Because I thought, okay, I thought let's make it a big, an actual, full, complete, in a way, new series style, but you know, in a in a nineteen seventy four context, which would be you know, not as many Daleks necessarily or ships flying around in the sky, but kind of a clandestine invasion of the Daleks of Earth in 1970. It would be 1975, but you know, that's what it's said if people want to know, 1975. And uh, But done in a way that's a slow burn. It's time we took a little break now. It's just our regular spot where we take a few minutes to tell you about some of the other conversations going on across the Fandom Podcast Network. On all those other shows, whatever your fandom, there's bound to be something here in this little lot just for you. Check it out. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to the Fandom Podcast Network and all of the other awesome shows we have to offer. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, our weekly pop culture news podcast. 
Blood of Kings, our Highlander podcast. Couch Potato Theater, our podcast celebrating our favorite movies. Time Warp, the fandom flashback podcast discussing a year in movies and our favorite pop culture topics. Enzo, the NFL podcast. Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. Union Federation, our Star Trek and Orville podcast. Hair Metal, the 80s and early 90s rock metal podcast. Type 40, our Doctor Who podcast. Lethal Mullet, a 1980s and 90s action film podcast. What a Piece of Junk, a Star Wars podcast. And our newest show, Making Treks, a new Star Trek podcast with a deep dive into the final frontier with host Mark Newbold and Adam P. O'Brien. You can enjoy all of these great fandom podcast network shows on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. Fandom Podcast Network is also on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also find us on Facebook under Fandom Podcast Network. You can also email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter under Fandom Podcast Network. Thank you for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalised you there, now let us clothe you too. Head over to tpublic.com, search for the Fandom Podcast Network, and you'll find a store full of the team colours for all those shows on t-shirts, hats, mugs, and a TARDIS full of other items. Treat yourself, treat your other selves, and it all goes to support the network continuing to fill your ears with 100% fabulous fandom goodness. So, uh, when you got this material, Terry... Did it seem like ridiculously ambitious to you? How did it feel to you when you when you got set these scripts, presumably electronically through email or whatever else? Did it surprise you with with every twist and turn? Did you think oh, could this get any bigger? Can this get any more ambitious? Um, no, I mean, I, I I read them as they came in, and I could see it was a you know a, a big and quite fitting to be a grand adventure for for what is essentially you know a celebration of Roger Delgado. Um, you know, set in this this uh, style and feel of a 1974 Pertwee uh, adventure. Um, obviously, I think if you take on too much of the entire scope of things, it might become a bit daunting. Especially as you know, I find myself uh, plugged into the one of the the co lead roles. So I I focused on um, the majority of my scenes, which are either with the Daleks or with the Doctor um, and the first thing that jumped out to me was how well the dialogue was written because you know this is no slight on Chris but being from the other side of the pond sometimes the the quintessential Englishness of some of the dialogue that you get I mean even more so back in the 70s because every actor was you know, rather trained and uh, part of the establishment, and it was all my good, my dear chap, and all this kind of stuff. And that's that's a hard, uh, another hurdle to kind of uh, get over. Not only have you got to write for Brits, but you've got to write in this kind of days gone by, very clipped uh, style. You can see that obviously, Chris, when you um, immersed yourself in the entire Pertwee era, um, that helped to inform the way. Every- 
everyone was speaking to each other. So when you've got a new character that no one's seen on TV, such as the prime minister, etc., you can instantly get a, a sort of handle on how he would speak and the, you know the, the the dialect of the day. You know, I, I was expecting to have to come back with some notes and say, well, I, he wouldn't say that and he wouldn't say this, but I don't think I did really, but because again, I'm a very visual person, so I just try and visualize a three-wall set, as you say, Dan, and uh, Roger Delgado and John Pertwee hunched over a TARDIS console going, you know, pass me this tool. Thank you, Doctor. And uh, Have you ever thought, and, and, and it's just, you know, they're going into it, and I think if it feels authentic in my mind mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't feel out of place, then and it's obviously well-written. Yeah. No, no, That's the thing, isn't it? Because as, as high as high stakes as these absolutely are, and as explosive as the production value is on on this entire story, you know, it really the, the soundscapes it just feels so so full. As much as all that is there, this is a mannered piece for the most part, and it's got in the same way that Roger Delgado was quite a mannered mannered man. It was a mannered performance, but you, you've got that sort of suave quality definitely in that character but it it is i think in all its best moments that the moments that make the hair stand up on the on the back of a fan's neck are the character moments i feel the characters are propelling this chris the temptation and with this huge story it could have very much it could have been the case where the story could have run away with you as a writer is what i that that in kind of circling back to a little one thing you asked me that i had forgotten to answer was you know how quickly did I write this or how did I get to it? I, I, I made a very special part. How I outlined it was I just, and this actually matters in a strange way. I just wrote the outline on, on a, you know, online, you know, through Microsoft Word, whatever. And I, and I set myself a goal, one page per episode. And so keeping that as a framework, okay, it's not, episode one will be one page, episode two will be another page and so to speak. It's not going to spill over into a second page. If I start spilling over into a second page, I've got to trim it. I've got to fit it on this page. Self-editing. And so that meant, okay, what what will be the character beats? That helped me keep in mind and discipline myself. What character beats do I want this episode? What story beats do I want this episode? Well, I put myself in the mindset of knowing that John Pertwee and Roger Glotter were, were best friends in real life. And so there would have been this sense of, if not them writing the scripts, that they would have perhaps said, look, even in their performance, this is really about us, the characters. Add itself. You could have this external storyline of explosions and invasions, but there has to be an internal storyline, which is the characters of the Doctor and the Master reaching some, if not reconciliation, if not even understanding, at least some some reckoning through the dialogue and through the interactions, simply um, involvement in the two characters. And I approached it certainly with a sense of maybe a sense of of, of wistfulness, which is this is the last I could see Roger and, and John in my mind if this in an alternate reality if they were in, there in 1974 and he's still alive mm-hmm. Roger Delgado I could see them talking to each other offset or on screen or re- going through the scripts maybe reading them together saying this is the last time that we're going to play together we're gonna, the last time that we're going to um, work together in this story and so let's do our best and so I thought let's keep centered these characters this is all about the Doctor and the Master and how they react to each other in a conflict and how ha- and how that conflict changes or or informs one another of, of the of the character and so that's how i kept anchored by that structure write each script and and really also that one last thing i you asked how quickly these things were able to get to the actors in a way very quickly i was able to write these scripts with that self-discipline and that north star okay it's about the characters 
and everything around them. That's how the characters are reacting to things. I didn't write the scripts very quickly. I wouldn't have been able to write them as quickly if I had not immersed myself. What Jerry was saying about the sounds of the characters and the new characters coming and being able to fit, like the Prime Minister, like his right-hand man, Sam Jackson. I wouldn't have been able to do it that quickly and that, that perhaps it, uh, authentically if I had not watched the Pertwee episodes. What, the irony is I, di I did not watch, and this is purposeful, I did not watch Planet of the Spiders. I'm not surprised because Planet, Planet of the Spiders, it's, it's got its fans, that uh, that story has. The, the people who love it really love it. But the one thing, and it's, it's lots yes. of fun, and there are lots of moments in that that do stand out, and it is a nice end to the year. It, do, it does conjure so. up something of what we've been speaking about, but I, it does always feel like a little bit of a compromise, and the one thing it absolutely isn't, it is not a character piece at all. You do feel that there's something missing in that respect from it. So you offering this as... You know, you, you're not wiping no. Planet of the Spiders out of out of continuity at all, not by no. a long chalk, but as a, as an alternative, as an additional finale. I feel this this does nothing but adds to the era, and it completely exists sort of alongside, yes. really. And for all that you've you've pulled on the strings, and you have reached back into the the corners of the Pertwee era, and I, I'm not going to spoil all the surprises for people who haven't heard the final game because we do really want as many fans as possible to go and find this and listen to it and enjoy it and to talk about it and to share it so we're not going to spoil it but there are easter eggs too aren't there there are little nuggets for people yes. to find did that get dropped in after the fact did things dawn on you later on in the process oh that can connect there i can pop that in there that might yes yeah, so nice. while i was writing the scripts um when i wrote the outlines the outlines came first and then in the process of writing the scripts what you just described will start to happen. Oh, I could do this, I could do that. It started to dawn on me that what I was approaching, how I was approaching writing the final game the, uh, in the context of how, to, what does it fit alongside Planet of Spiders? I was starting to approach it as if it were a kind of a second round of Frontier in Space, Planet of the Daleks. If anyone wants to know why it's not, why it's seven parts is that I, and not six, is that when I was writing the sixth page, the outline, I thought, okay, six parts, it will be that's what it would have been. I realized there was too much story left to fit it into one, so I, I made the concession compromise. Let's make it a seven-part story. But once you listen to part seven, you will, I believe, understand why it is two halves of this, of not necessarily the same story, but two halves of an overall uh, theme or an arc. And you, obviously, Terry, have you already recorded part yes. seven? Is this all yes. Yes. Um, is it satisfying for you, the whole Yeah, it, it's satisfying, but more importantly than that, it's authentic in the way that it it wraps up a Doctor Who adventure on TV, as you'd imagine. But it also, like you say, it does its job of giving, um, of treating all the characters with a certain amount of respect and the correct level of importance, you know, because it is, it is called Doctor Who. It's the Doctor's uh, show. He's the hero. Mm -hmm. But it still does, you know, justice to uh, the Master and that, uh, incarnation of the master you know it just feels very authentic so i think that's one of the things that a lot of the the people who hear it whether it's on youtube or on on podcasts they they like about it because it feels genuine it's it doesn't feel like um someone who doesn't know what they're doing acting wise or someone who doesn't know what they're doing writing wise it, it feels yeah. like everyone um is first in doctor who and you know you get that in the characters yes as a performer, Terry, how did you record your content? 
did you do it across Zoom or Skype, for example, with other actors, or did you record your your material, your lines separately, individually, and it was all put together afterwards? What was the process like for you? Um, most of the time, when I'm doing uh, audio recording, I'm usually on my own. I will go into something if I'm confident enough that I've spoken to the writer or the director, and uh, we've got an agreement on how it should be done. Um, I'm, I'm not one of the people who would send over 12 takes of every line because after a while, if, if you've committed yourself to a number of takes, you just start doing 12 versions of everything, whether it's needed or not. <laughs> so I will go with my instinct for the first take, then I'll listen to it myself and think, is that right? Does that sound like it the way it should be toned or intoned or whatever? You know, I would rather send off one take or two takes uh, generally just one because if it's not right then I can be asked to come back can you come back and read like uh, episode one line 15 because it needs to match what the doctor said there or it needs to be angrier or that kind of thing but I say if the script is written well enough and it was that you know you get an idea of what mood everyone's in and how much energy into a performance so I recorded all my lines on my own just with a microphone in front of me and uh, a quiet day and um, just go through them and then once once I've recorded everything in an episode I'll listen back to I'll grab it all the the, the wave files put them into a an audio player and just play them loudly and just listen to them all the way through and if there's anything that I've noticed I've mispronounce the word or you're something. able you're able to do kind of what chris was talking about when he self-edits yeah you're able to sort of take a few steps back from your own performance yeah. and sort of hone in on anything you feel that you may have there are there are certain bits in takes where um i might take a breath that's too loud so i will go into that and i can i can decrease the volume just on that breath so you can't hear it or if something needs to be said a little bit quicker um i can snip out a space between two words so if someone was saying, good morning, doctor, like this, then you think, oh, that's a bit dragged out. So I could just snip a little bit at the end of morning and that gap. So it'll just be, good morning, doctor. It'll be a little bit closer, a little bit tighter. So that's the thing I've got from doing years of um, uh, commercials and things as well, where things have to be within a certain time frame. You've got 15 seconds to get all these yeah. words in. Yeah. And I will say, in terms of the brilliance, in my opinion, and really it is the brilliance of Terry's, Terry's performances, when I was writing the scripts, I definitely tried to have the voices of the characters in my heads. I can say, honestly, that that I had, in my mind, since since the, all these voices, Nicholas Courtney, Roger Delgado, John Pertree, Elizabeth Slade, and everyone, are, are ringing in my head when I've, I'm writing these, that I had, you know, not, not a, it has to sound this way, but I had a thought of, in my mind, okay, he not so much delivers this line, but in a general sense, this is how Roger Delgado sounds when he delivers, delivers the line. When I heard Terry's performances, sometimes they sounded similarly, just in general, sometimes a little different, but I never thought, okay, that needs to change. I thought, great, that sounds like Roger Delgado. His delivery informed my reception of the character. I thought, he sounds great, because he had, of course, why didn't I think of that when I was writing? Of course, he sounds that way. And there's, I can't, I'm not pointing to specific examples, but just if there were ever, yeah. like, oh, he sounded more bright or, or darker than I thought, I thought, great. There, there's little things uh, in the, the doctor's voice and the master's voice that the actors did, which wasn't on the written page. And I found with the master, some of the things he does, 
he puts in a little noise before a word. Uh, you'll you'll get what I mean when I when I do an impression. But I've noticed uh, the only other actor who does a similar kind of thing is Roddy McDowell you know, when he was doing Planet of the Apes. So uh, where I would say, right, that's fine. Would anyone like a cup of tea? Right. Roger Delgado go. That's fine. Uh, would anyone like a cup of tea? This is like a, uh, at the start. Oh. Uh, yes, Doctor. There's that little... Uh, and Roddy McDowell do the same. I was thinking... That it's it's like a breath, but it's, there's, a little, a little there's a noise in there. Yeah, yeah so yeah. it's like... One of these things... Uh, yes, Doctor. It, it's kind of just... It's little... to imply a spontaneity, isn't it? And a, and, a, and a courtesy. Oh, you know, I've remembered my manners. It's that yeah. kind of thing. And it, and, and also, like... it, it also gives the impression that it is more spontaneous and less... You know, just regurgitating what was yeah. on the printed page, and like I used, I used to say, you know, oh. that, and that's a very old-fashioned way of speaking. You know, that, uh, yes. but Marshall was doing the same kind of thing with the, the way that Pertwee would drag a word out yeah. or the flourishes. Yeah, and also Pertwee does a lot of he runs out of breath while talking, so he's almost squeezing the last few words out. And John Coltrane does this, and you noticed it that my dear chap, it's kind of like this. It's mm. yes, so Joe. You know, it's almost like he's got no breath left, and he's just trying to get those last few words out. You know, without that, you lose a, a small dimension of reality from the actor. I, I, I'm not an impressionist, so I, I, I wouldn't be able. I don't know how to describe it as ter Terry might. But same thing with our, our Sarah Jane actress. They 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 really immerse themselves in the roles because our Sarah Jane actress in this story actually is also an American. She's from. Vermont, I think. Surprise, huh? <laughs> they, yeah, genuinely well, surprised. Well, she, yeah, well, she, yeah. Yes, really well, she immersed herself in the role, and so she was able to get the sense of the character's style. She described the character, how the character moves, how she looks of Sarah Jane. There are so many great performances in this, and you can see that they've been considered. And you know, I'd like to, I'd like to call out to absolutely everybody on the cast. I'd love to get some more of them on the show yes. at some point, because it does seem a shame not to name-check them all, but it probably wouldn't be possible, because this feels like it's a cast of a cast of dozens it of is. people. It feels... I don't know whether that is the case, how many people are actually... Whether, whether anybody doubled up. It's one of those things where, because it's not complete yet, I haven't looked too much under yes. the hood. I haven't looked up too many details about you, because I don't want to break the spell. It is a large cast. Well, not a massive cast, like, not 60 people, but it is a good-sized cast, and... Uh, mostly individual performances and so and there's a kind of a, a sense of symmetry it's 100 years since his birth it's 45 years since his death it seems like it's the right time people might be in, interested but they may not be as as motivated to do this as it was at that time and because of that you really hear it in the performances you really hear the sense of people are not just simply reading the lines but they are performing it i will give a shout out like to the um the voice actors of sergeant benton and captain yates I decided yes. to bring Captain Yates into the story, and I think that John, his, Johnny Robinson, does a, like Terry said, does a wonderful job of get, sounding like Richard Franklin, but also just just a vocal performance. He's an excellent voice. I think by, he, he is by profession uh, an audiobook reader, and I'm sure also an actor in other things. But but that's his. This is his realm, and you you hear it. I will give a shout out to the, um, Richard Girl who plays um, Sergeant Benton. Oh. Yeah, Richard, uh, Richard Sergeant Benton uh, gets a lot of comments on YouTube and that people yes. just are just blown away because the cool thing about Benton is he is a, uh, 
a grunt he's just a jobbing soldier and yes. the, the, <laughs> That's the, the temptation is that the actor could come in and go oh i'm sergeant benton and i'm an action hero but he, he doesn't do it he goes right miss yes miss and he just plays it like yes. john levine would Really for, for a moment, I did wonder whether you'd got John Levine oh, back on that. I wish. I wish, but I, I, I will tell you. I just knew he has to. So massive shout out to Richard Girl because he, as soon as I heard it, it was nailed for me. I just thought I, I, I would be a fool not to cast this man as Sergeant Benton. And 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 then of course we have a wonderful sound designer Gareth uh, Gareth Severn, who I want, definitely want to talk about more. He's amazing. The, the soundscapes on it are, are, are unique and, and remarkable and they take you to, to a place that I don't think, a precise place that I don't think we've ever been to with Doctor Who on audio before. It sounds like Doctor Who and feels like Doctor Who but it also feels a little like it's the cousin of uh, the War of the Worlds album, the, the Jeff Wayne album. It feels That's how it seems yeah. to me. It's got a foot in those concept albums of the early to mid-70s, funnily yeah. enough. And that's why it feels so authentic. And that's why, you know, when you are stepping up something like Doctor Who, which is a tea time adventure show for kids on a really small budget, if you're stepping it up, you've got to be as authentic as you possibly can somewhere along the way. Uh, and I really do feel that the balance is completely and utterly right. And I'd like to say, you know, well done to absolutely everybody involved in the final oh, yes. game. But you're not stop, stopping for long, are you, Chris? I understand you've got another Black Glove Studios production pretty much on the starting grid yes. already. Do you want to tease that a little bit? You can say as much as you Yes, I can. I'll tease a, a little as you Yes, want. I'll tease a few, um, few things. Um, we have fully recorded another centennial story, and this is for Peter Butterworth, uh, who played the monk in the, in the William Hartnell okay. years, a story called The Misshapen Planet. Last year was the centennial for Peter Butterworth. It's a real Doctor Who legend, Peter oh, Butterworth, yes. playing the monk, and so, originating the character back in 1965. And, and appearing in the Time Middler and a few episodes, the later episodes of the Dalek Master Plan. I've, I've loved trilogies, and so when I found out that he only appeared tw twice as wonderful, the first recurring villain, single villain in Doctor Who, and therefore the first retroactively Time Lord antagonist, not exactly a villain, but even so, a foe for the Doctor. We've written, <laughs> I wrote this story, The Misshapen Planet, it's a four-part story, and with the first Doctor, Stephen and Dodo, and the Vord are there. That's, that's part of the story, and so that's coming. There, there will be a follow-up to the final game, uh, a fourth Doctor, um, Roger Delgado Master trilogy. In a nutshell, it is continuing the bridge of the gap from the Roger Delgado years to the deadly assassin for the Master, so seeing how he ends up in that condition. We also have a centennial purely dedicated to uh, John Pertwee called uh, The Veiled Memory, a dedicated single episode story for him as a, as a centennial, set immediately after Spearhead from Space, where he faces the Master, but uh, which Master is the question? And uh, our big thing that we're starting right now, the Sarah Jane Adventure yes, Series 5 Volume 2, uh, which is essentially just uh, an audio adaptations of the uh, last three unmade Sarah Jane adventure stories um, un left unmade because of the sad passing uh, of uh, Elizabeth Slater. Yeah. And Russell T. Davis made these storylines public, didn't he? He, he wrote articles mm -hmm. explaining where the series would have gone for Doctor Who magazine, didn't he? A number of years ago now for a special. So you've got, you've got some idea of where he would have taken it to a conclusion. Yes, so that exactly. Helps exactly. They're called Meet Mr. Smith, 13th Floor, which incidentally was produced for kind of a spiritual successor series, um, Wizards vs. Aliens, and the Battle of Bannerman Road. Just like with the final game, the enthusiastic reaction of other actors coming into the 
to play because, and that are um, teenagers and little children that were maybe themselves little children or probably even not hadn't been born yet or something when the Sarah Jane Adventures were airing. You've got a repertory company yes. now of voice actors who you've worked with, I'd imagine, as long as their as their work commitments and the other things they've got going on in their lives permit. It sounds like a lot of fun. Is, yes. is it, Terry? Is it? Oh, the, vo- the voice acting is brilliant. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've I've done quite a bit of paid work, but that's just the, the sort of boring radio commercials and this kind of thing. Um, I've, I've never really been paid for acting. You've never character. tried to take over the universe before, have you? <laughs> oh, goodness me. Well, yeah. I mean, when you're in a position of power and you can tell the doctor what to do, it doesn't get better than that, does it? You know. Um, so I guess it's one of those things that uh, it's a plum roll. Fan audio and fan productions give you the chance to do things you'd never get to do in real life. So, you know, I get to play the master, you know. Well, I'm, I will say this. I I don't know what how far my voice on this, what I'm about to say, will carry, but I really, really feel that if Big Finish is, is looking for a Roger Logano master, they cannot find anyone, in my opinion, better than, than Terry Cooper. And I really hope that if anyone here is, is listening to this from Big Finish, because you've had Big Finish people before, I think it's inevitable that they will recast the Delgado master. And, yeah, they've um, got quite a lot of yeah. masters, uh, actors yes. now, including their own ones. Yes. Um, there are people... For example, Chris Walker-Thompson, who does the best Patrick Troughton you've ever heard. Although he has done a big Finnish story with Tom Baker, he's not playing the Doctor. He's playing generic man number 16 or whatever. And um, they still use uh, Fraser Hines to do mm-hmm. Patrick Troughton's voice. What, is this one thing that was kind of a sobering thing for me in, in producing the final game is early on in the, produc- early in the production, I, I had the idea of I want to present this story in some way to Roger Delgado's widow, but she died shortly before we went into production. And so that that couldn't happen, but I thought, well, I would love to be able to present this to his family, but I fe- quickly found out that he has no family left. He had a first wife. His, sure. his wife that died recently was his second wife. His biographer, I contacted his biographer, who's, uh, I think he's an Australian man, and I asked him, is, is she still alive? And he said, I don't know. He looked but he can't find any trace of her, and he can't find any trace of any other of any direct family. So it, it really was a so that no joke. That was a very sobering moment for me when I realized there's no one left in his family. All we can do to honor his memory is do what we've done, and we have no one to present it to in his family. For a man who spent a couple of decades, probably close to three decades, on screen in movies and TV shows. Yeah, he could have easily refused to do TV. I mean, generally, uh, even though production values have gone up, you know, in this century, generally people would see TV as a step backwards from movies. So you very rarely get movie actors doing TV. And it's strange, isn't it? Because now we know everything about the actors on TV. And, you know, whether they want, whether they want us to, some of them want us to know absolutely everything about them, and others don't. But it's the nature of the press and everything. And so to think there could be a man, a man of this high profile, and who was this loved in this particular role alone, but somebody who was so recognisable and so much a common sight on the big and the small screen whose life is still quite shrouded in mystery, yes. really, and, and his family. And it's in a sense, it adds to the mystique yes, of him. And you know, I know this is completely sort of by the by, but it does add something to the mask yes. too. Roger Elgato probably is 
in terms of the higher profile actors in Doctor Who, the one, like you said, that we know just about the least because there are no uh, interviews of him. There are no interviews. The, close, the only interview that I could find of him is a sentence that he was printed, I think, in the Doctor Who magazine where he says he enjoys, I think it, it was, and it was in a weird way, perhaps a tease for the final game and that he, it's because it was 1973, he was interviewed in 73 and he filmed Frontier Space in October 72. And so shortly before his death, he's interviewed and he says, oh, I enjoy playing the master at such fun and I hope that I can do it again. That's all we have. This production, as it stands at the moment, as a tribute, I think he'd be incredibly touched, moved, surprised and would totally take it in which the in the spirit in which it's been offered you've more than done him proud both of you gentlemen and everybody else involved in the final game uh, mission definitely accomplished i know there's lots of work ahead of you terry and chris and we'd love to get you back on at a later date to speak more about the production process and voice work and writing and all the rest of it Chris, we're going to need some links yes. from you now. The best places where people can hear the content that's already available out there. And anywhere you'd like to direct people, they could be listening to this and salivating and need to know as much as they can about the upcoming projects as soon as they can. So hit us with all the links. Where can people see and well, hear? We have, um, we have a Facebook page, Black Love Studio. Um, where I'm most active is, and there's, we also have an Instagram page um, under that same name, black underscore glove underscore studio, where we are most um, active is on Twitter, at Studio Glove. I think it's capital S, capital G, at Studio Glove. No underscores or anything. We'll keep watching and follow all those links. Terry, Chris, thank you for your time. It's been delightful to speak to you. <laughs> Cheers again to Terry and Chris from Black Glove Studio. Go and look them out. New projects are starting to appear from them. And that's our time rotor kicking in and calling time for now. We'll be back with another edition of Type 40. Look out for that wherever you found this. Maybe it was on the brand new Type 40 podcast feed hosted at type40.podbean.com by popular demand. Our very own feed. Now we're even easier to find. Or you can search for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn or the Podbean app. And don't forget, over on YouTube, the world's largest streaming platform. We're still on the Fandom Podcast Network's incredible master feed, of course, with all those other great shows. As ever, you can keep in touch through our social medias, Instagram and Twitter, at Type40DoctorWho, even email Type40DoctorWho at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you're feeling particularly brave and fancy some real-time, extra-dimensional chit-chat, step into the Type40 Facebook group. I'm Dan Hadley. You can find me scattered across all of space and time, though mostly on Twitter and Instagram as The Spacebook, wheezing and groaning, it's my age, <laughs> and posting about whatever catches my eye, imagination, or both in popular culture, inside and outside of the TARDIS. There's links to all of that in our show notes. We always have the time. If you have the space here on Type 40, thank you for playing our game. Speak to you soon.
Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, is a space book production for the Fandom Podcast Network with music by Problem Being.